I imagine that you've either heard or perhaps even used the phrase, well, read the handwriting on the wall. If that, if that phrase isn't familiar to me, let me give you a couple examples of when you might hear it or the context where it might be shared. An employee might say, I just know I'm going to be fired. I can read the handwriting on the wall. Or, can't you see what the boss is planning? Read the handwriting on the wall. We use this English idiom to describe um, anticipation of what's going to happen. It means to be aware, watch for the signs, pick up on the hints and clues. And we never use it in, in, the, in, in a good sense. It always seems to hold that idea of imminent doom. When you talk about reading the handwriting on the wall, bad things are going to happen, not good things. Now, where did we get that kind of a phrase? Well, it comes right out of the story of King Belshazzar in the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel, an event, by the way, which the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied about a hundred years before it even happened. The passage has been the subject of several famous paintings down through the years. You're going to see some of those paintings on the, on the screen behind me. It also was the inspiration for a massive musical production composed in 1929 by William Walton, which involved a full orchestra, a full choir, and two brass bands. The music is simply called Belshazzar's Feast. And that's the heart of the story and the lessons that we're going to learn this morning by studying the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel. Now, I am always, um, I'm always amazed that when you're reading through Scripture that you can go from one chapter to the next chapter. Sometimes you can go from one verse to the next verse, and a large time period of span has, has escaped between those two. Such is the case here. When we finished up last week with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace, and we come to this particular story, about 60 to 65 years have transpired. Uh, Daniel is no longer a teenager. He is now uh, a, a senior citizen. And uh, at, at about 80 years of age, he is not even active in the kingdom at this point in time. Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, is now king in Babylon. Uh, and it's been a rocky transition in the 20 years or so since the death of Nebuchadnezzar. And as, as often is the case, there's a lot of competition for the throne. Many contenders experience untimely deaths. One was assassinated by his brother. Another was killed in battle. Uh, still another was captured by the Medes and the Persians and held as a prisoner of war for the rest of his life. So there's a lot of jockeying back and forth for the throne, which is understandable. I also need to add for you here uh, this morning that in the Hebrew language and in the Chaldean language, the, the, the language of the Babylonians, there is no word to translate grandfather or grandpa. I find that heartbreaking and tragic. No word for grandpa. I mean, that surely has to be corrected somewhere along in, in history. But at that day and time, they, they didn't denote it like that. And so the word father was used to describe a father and a son it was used to describe a grandfather and a grandson, great-grandfather and a great-grandson. Father was just covered all the bases. And so when you're reading through the story in, you, in the fifth chapter and you think, well, it sounds like Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's son. No, it, his grandson. And history records how all of these things uh, pass by uh, together. But Belshazzar was a lousy heir to his grandfather's great power and great control and great leadership. You see, Belshazzar was a partier, not a leader. 
Now, when Nebuchadnezzar died, history also tells us that all of his enchanters, astrologers, and wise men that had formed his cabinet of advisors had been dismissed and, and gotten rid of. That shouldn't surprise us. Same thing happens in our own country. When we have a presidential election and a new president takes office, that president dismisses oftentimes the entire staff and from the White House and the cabinet and everything else, a group of advisors is all brand new. That's just kind of the way history has done it. So Daniel would have been included in that. And so for about the last 20 years, Daniel has been off somewhere else just serving God in the quietness of his retirement years. And yet, even though he had dropped out of sight for 20 years, he comes back to be the very central focus of this particular chapter. Now, we're not told the occasion of the party. We're just told it was in honor of the god Bel. And, and you can understand that. Belshazzar was named after the god Bel. As a matter of fact, Nebuchadnezzar had given Daniel a Babylonian name when he had been captured. It was Belteshazzar. So Daniel had to wear this pagan name around his neck for all the years that he had lived in Babylon, honoring the god Bel. The party is out of control from the very outset, folks. I told you, Belshazzar is a partier. He is not a leader. He, his drunken behavior was beneath the dignity of a king in that day and time. Now, Proverbs chapter 31 gives us a little bit of insight here. Proverbs 31 says, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine, nor for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what the law decrees and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. Such debased celebrations were not befitting of royalty. A king was not allowed to, to stupor into such conditions. To add insult to injury, Belshazzar also invited wives, concubines, and certain women of the kingdom to this drunken feast, which was also... Uh, without precedent in that day. You didn't mix the two groups together. Now, I realize in our day and time, this doesn't sound like all that much of an offense. But in that day, this, this was over the top. This kind of behavior didn't happen anywhere. And this is not only an embarrassment to the kingdom, it's an embarrassment to Belshazzar himself. He didn't care. He, he has no restraint. He shows no restraint. Caution to the wind. He's just going to have a good time. And then, and then he does the unthinkable. He calls for somebody to go into the temple or to the palace treasury and bring out the gold and silver vessels that had been used at the temple in Jerusalem in the worship of God. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar had brought these to Babylon when he had taken um, Daniel and the others captive. And, and, uh, and yet Nebuchadnezzar had never done anything vulgar with them. He had simply put them in the storehouse of Babylon which you would do. It's the spoils of battle. That's what you would do. But whew, Belshazzar says, I want to party with them. Now, you've got to understand what's going on here. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system, where people would bring animals for sacrifice, was, was for one purpose. And that one purpose was to, first of all, remind people that they are sinners. And number two, it was to point to a time when God sometime in the future would send the Messiah, and the Messiah would once and for all pay for the price of the sins of all the people with his own sacrifice. Everything that happened at the temple revolved around God pointing to what he was going to do through the life of his son. This, these items had been devoted and consecrated to God. And so when they bring them out, Belshazzar blows the dust off of one of the golden goblets, fills it with strong drink, and swills from that which runs down his face and chin. Now, 
what, what would that have been like? How might that have touched the heart and the mind of God? I don't, I don't know that we can get close to that, but, but consider this for, for just a moment. A few, few moments ago, right before the sermon started, we, we celebrated the Lord's Supper. But let's suppose that you were, you were in your devotional time with the Lord's Supper. You're quietly, reverently praying and thinking about the death and the suffering of Jesus Christ. And, and suddenly you hear a commotion right back here at the center door, and, and it's, it's annoying enough that you look up, and you, and you turn your head and you look back, and you see a drunk stagger into the room and... Uh, and he rests away one of the communion trays from a worshiper near the end of the pew back there, staggers down the center aisle, takes that communion tray and dumps all of it out, throws the communion tray over here with a hoarse laugh, reaches down and takes one of those little cups and holds it up as a shot glass, pours out of his, uh, the vial that's in his back pocket a shot of Jack Daniels, holds it up in front of the whole congregation and says, here's a toast to the devil himself, and then drinks it. How would you feel at that moment? Would you be kind of, I can't believe something like that happened in such a sacred moment. This, this is, you would be incredulous at that. Now multiply that a hundred or a thousand times and you will begin to get a glimpse into the heart of God when this vessel that had been devoted to him is now being used in such a coarse and vulgar manner, worshiping some unknown God. Belshazzar raises the golden chalice to his lips, toasts the gods of wood, stone, and metal, and as the wine trickles down his beard, he looks up and is horrified to see this. In verses 5 and 6, suddenly the fingers of a hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. I'm telling you, I would be that way too if a hand appears on this wall not connected to any other body and begins to write. Wouldn't you be scared to death at something like that? Uh, that's not surprising. By the way, archaeologists have found the palace uh, and, and the banquet hall where Belshazzar's feast was held in the ruins of Babylon. It measures 60 feet wide by 172 feet long. The length of that banquet hall was about 60% the length of a football field. Now, I'm telling you, folks, this was a big hall. And yes, when they found the ruins, the walls had been plastered. The king calls for the enchanters and the diviners to come and interpret it, and of course they could not. Has, have any of you noticed this when we're going through in the book of Daniel? that these guys who were the enchanters and the diviners, they never could answer the questions. They knew diddly squat every time the king asked them, say, hey, can you tell me what this means? No, we can't tell you what that means. Talk to Daniel. Well, can you interpret this? No, can't interpret that. Talk to Daniel. These guys had a pretty cushy lifestyle going on by not knowing whatever was going on in the kingdom. Verse 25 says, this is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. It was Aramaic. But they had no idea what the words meant. And the king is beside himself with fear. The queen mother enters the banquet hall and she says, Now you know, there is a man here in the kingdom who helped your grandfather immensely. If you call him, he may be able to answer this as well. And so they send for Daniel. Have you also noticed this in our study of Daniel? That Daniel never is where the crisis takes place. Daniel is never caught up 
in all of the revelry. He is never caught up in, in all of the bad things that are going on, the crisis moments, the, the debauchery that's going on. Daniel always has to be called into those settings. I think it's a, an incredible lesson here to learn, and that is stay away from the places and the people and the things and the events that are going to tempt you to compromise your faith and your relationship with God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 22 says, Avoid every evil thing, or all that is evil, or as the old King James put it, uh, uh, abstain from the very appearance of evil. In other words, when you know something is bad, and you know it's going to be hard for you to resist, don't go to that place, don't be around those people, don't be involved in that particular practice. Daniel was always trying to protect his relationship with God. And so Daniel always had to be called in to where things were going on. Once Belshazzar is convinced he's the guy that helped his grandfather, this is what he said. Verse 16, if you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Daniel isn't doing this for the reward. He said, you keep, you keep your prizes. Purple was a royal color. A gold chain meant authority. Um, third highest ruler. He said, well, why not the second highest? Because history tells us that Belshazzar was co-regent with his father, Nabonidus, who was out of the kingdom probably at the time that this, this happened. And so those two would have been the top two positions. They were going to make Daniel number three if he could give them an answer. But God's honor is at stake. God's word is at stake, and Daniel translates and interprets for the sake of God, not for the sake of the king. Verse 26, this is what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And while Daniel was giving this interpretation, at the very time of the feast, the city was under siege. Now, the king knew that. Ha! Ah, but you see, this, this, this incredible city, which was considered impregnable, this city which had enough food and water and sustainable supplies laid up that would take care of everybody in the city for 20 years, knew that the, that the Medes and the Persians couldn't hold out against his supplies. So he wasn't worried. And King Cyrus, who was the leader of the Medes and Persians, knew he couldn't outlast what the city had. Ah, but Cyrus was a great leader. He was a creative, smart man. And, and what Cyrus did was this. The, the river Euphrates ran right through the very heart of Babylon. And so Cyrus took part of his troops, and they placed it where the river entered the city, took part of his troops, placed it where the river exited the city. And then with the rest of his troops, he went upstream, used them as engineers, and they built a sluice gate on the Euphrates River that when they finished it, they were able to divert the water of the river around the city of Babylon. And when the water level dropped low enough, the troops from both sides of the city entered through the riverbed, walking right under the wall of the city. The city fell without a whimper. Belshazzar's feast became his funeral. He died as a result of the conquest. Nebuchadnezzar's dream was coming true. The, the head of gold had now crumbled into the chest of the silver with the two silver arms, the Medes and the Persians. Now, Here's some quick lessons I want to give you as we uh, take a look at this story. And here's the first one. You are never too old to make a difference for God. 
you are never too old to make a difference for God. You know you are getting old when you look forward to a dull evening at home. You know you're getting old when it takes twice as long to look half as good. You know you're getting old when you know your pharmacist so well she starts showing up in your family Christmas photos. Now, we think of aging as a setback, but God never does. I, I, I just love this. God never does. It doesn't matter at what age you are. If you are willing and available, God will use you. God used Daniel as a teenager. God now uses Daniel as a senior citizen. It doesn't matter. And I'm amazed at how often God used people who in the eyes of the world were past their prime and not usable anymore. Noah was an old man when God gave him the plans for the floating zoo that we call an ark. Abraham had become a centenarian, and Sarah, his wife, was 90 when she gave birth to Isaac, the son of the promise. Moses had 80 candles on his Midian birthday cake when God sent him back to Egypt. Zechariah and Elizabeth were well past the age of childbearing when, when God said, you're going to have a son, Elizabeth, and you're going to name him John, and he became the great John the Baptist. Simeon was an old man when he was at the temple. Anna was a prophetess who was 84 years old when Mary and Joseph brought the infant Jesus to the temple for his dedication, and Simeon took him in his arms and prophesied, and Anna prophesied about him. Lois, Timothy's grandmother, had a huge impact on the faith of this young man who became a great leader in the early church and was a, a close associate and friend of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle John was likely 80 or older when he saw a vision of heaven that he wrote down and recorded as the revelation. Here's Daniel, 80 years old, seemingly no longer in the picture, and then suddenly God uses him in the most powerful of ways. And, and can I tell you this? You know, as your age transitions and you wonder, is God ever going to use me? Has God used me? Can you remember that your life may be for one shining moment? It may not be that God's going to use you in some great and powerful way for 50 years of your life straight. It may be that your role is for one incredible shining moment. And you say, well, I haven't had that shining moment yet. And I'm, so, I'm going to say, are you 80 yet? You know, because it, if you're still alive, that shining moment could still be coming. Look at Simeon. All we know about Simeon is this that God had promised him that he would not die until he had held in his arms the Messiah. And, and on that day when they showed up at the temple, for just a handful of minutes, he holds in his arms, he cradles in his arms the Messiah of the world, prophesies about him, and then says, now, Lord, you can take me home in peace. I'm done. But for 2,000 years, we've been reading about Simeon and his prophecy. For one shining moment, if, if you don't think God has used you, don't give up yet. It may not be your shining moment time. And can I also remind you, you may have had your shining moment, and it may not be about you knowing about it. God may have used you in a way that only he knows how the impact will be, and that will show up later, long after you have a chance to know. It, your role, my role, is just to be faithful and to be ready to be to serve God when the call comes. So regardless of your age, young or old, teenager or senior citizen, like Daniel, God can and will use you if you'll answer the call when it comes. Here's the second thing. You're never too out of the picture to be overlooked by God. Uh, or, or to put it, you're never too far out of the picture, but what God can see you and use you. 
I don't know that Daniel ever wondered if God had forgotten him, but the leadership of Babylon certainly had, and he knew it. For years, Daniel was at the top of his game, and his position in the kingdom was high enough that he didn't even have to leave the palace. So it must have been hard to adjust when suddenly he was no longer needed and basically put out to pasture. But that can happen to any of us at any time. We're no different. Times are tough when you feel like you've been forgotten. Times are tough when you feel invisible among all the people. Times are tough when you feel like you've been overlooked. But, but, you, can't, but you can't be so far out of the picture that God will see you. He will not overlook you. Your boss walks in one day, you think everything's good. And the boss says, business is slow. We have to cut our workforce. I'm sorry, here's your pink slip. Or, we've merged with another company and your position is no longer needed. Pink slip. Or, we've gone to hiring part-time workers to save funds, so your job has been reduced to 20 hours a week with no benefits. Do you want to stay? Or perhaps you haven't even made it into the workforce yet, but you're hearing things like this. Well, your credentials look great, but I'm sorry. We're just not hiring right now. Do I, do I need to go on? You, you, you see this on a regular basis. And, and while... This event in Daniel lends itself to work-related issues. It's certainly not limited to work-related issues. Maybe you're single, and you feel alone and overlooked because you're single. Or, or, or maybe you're married, and you still feel alone and overlooked in your marriage. Maybe at school you feel like an outsider because you can't find a place to fit in without compromising your faith. You feel invisible even though you're surrounded by students in your school every day. I'm here to tell you, you are not overlooked. God will not overlook you. God knows who you are and where you are all the time. You may feel that way in the world. You may feel invisible in your own house, but you're not to God. He always knows where you are. You're not alone in these moments. So don't give in to the temptation to compromise what you know is the right thing to do just so that you don't feel alone. Do you remember his promise? In, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, do not worry. Do, do not say, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Except for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You just focus on today. Here's, here's the deal, folks. Did you catch what he said? Jesus said two things, put me first and follow me. Do the right thing and I'll take care of you. You'll never be invisible with God. You'll never get to a point, you'll never be so out of it that God will overlook you. He can't. He knows where you are and worry won't help. Stay close, stay faithful to the king. Okay, here's another thing. You are never too smart to learn from the lessons of the past. When Daniel appears before Belshazzar, he goes through a review of what the king uh, Nebuchadnezzar had learned at God's time, what God had taught him. And then Daniel adds this. He says, but you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Now, maybe, maybe God was more patient with Nebuchadnezzar because he was ignorant. But Belshazzar, he saw what happened in his grandfather's life. He had seen how God had worked in Daniel's direction in life, and, and God is saying, you knew all this, and yet had utter disregard for such important lessons. None of us are perfect. We all make mistakes, but take this lesson to heart. You are never too smart 
to stop learning the lessons of the past. Okay? I enjoy reading biographies because I think when you read biographies, you can learn from people's successes, you can learn from people's failures. I am so thankful that God included dozens and dozens of biographies in the Scripture. And can I tell you this, too, that there are more failures than successes that are recorded in the Scripture, and what God teaches us through those biographies applies to our life. Now, if you will take those things to heart, if you will learn from those lessons, you'll, you'll improve if you say, I don't need that, I, I, I'm smart enough on my own, I can handle it, you're, you're headed for a really tough time. How patient do you think God will be if he's given you all the right tools to learn the lessons of the past and you don't take advantage of them? Here's the last thing. You're never too strong to survive on your own. If you think that you're strong enough that you can survive on your own, you got another thing coming. Like the captain of the Titanic, King Belshazzar was overconfident in himself and his unsinkable kingdom. But Babylon did fall. Bel, the god of the feast, could not save the king nor the kingdom. And that very night, the royal line of Nebuchadnezzar slipped quietly into the annals of history, just like the Titanic slipped below the cold Atlantic waves. And if you think for a minute that, well, I'm not like everybody else. That won't happen to me. I can make it on my own. I'm strong enough to do it my way. Boy, you are just setting yourself up for a big fall. You're standing right on the edge of the grave, and you don't know how close you are to disaster. If God weighed our lives in the scales, his divine scales, what do you suppose he'd, he'd see? Do you think we'd come up wanting? Yeah, I do. I, it's only by his grace that we have life everlasting anyway. So know this. You are not strong enough to survive on your own. God is the only hope that we have in making through this life as a winner. 23 years ago, in 1990, it doesn't seem like it's been that long to me, but it has, 23 years ago. Um, in 1990, the Berlin Wall was torn down um, in Germany there, that divided East Germany from uh, West Germany and East Berlin from West Berlin. And uh, when communism fell uh, in that time period, um, Billy Graham was asked to go to the Brandenburg Gate and do a spiritual service in order to remind the people who now had this brand new freedom of their spiritual need. And he said one of the ladies that he talked to afterwards told him she, she had been behind the Iron Curtain for all of her life. You know, since 1945 when, um, when the war ended, uh, you know, there had been this divide uh, through that period of time. And, and so for the first time they experienced the freedom of the West. And this, this lady from the former Soviet Union part, East Germany, told Billy Graham, she said, when I came across to the west side and experienced freedom for the first time, she said, I thought there would be church bells ringing. I thought they would hand me a Bible since I had been without one for all these years. She said, what they handed me was the equivalent of $50 and told me to go spend it on something in one of their luxury stores. She said, what we needed more than anything was to hear the voice of God. You want to survive in this world in the tough times? You, you, you want to conquer the, the tough moments in life? I'm here to tell you, the only way you can do that is through the voice of God. Only God can give you the strength to survive. More than anything, we need to know what He has to say to us, not what anybody else has to say. Read the handwriting on the wall, won't you? In Him is life. Without him, the party's over, and you're going down. 
Do you know him this morning as your Savior?